0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Peace Building Podcast, uh, Bridging the Divide, which uh, specializes, as you know, in strategies to build common ground in complex systems. We look for some of the most interesting interviews we can find of people that are bringing people together um, using uh, interesting tools, techniques, processes, and sometimes we diverge uh, to just simply talk about something that's relevant to peace building and building a more peaceful planet. So um, today uh, we have yet another mass shooting in the United States, this time in a church in Texas. The shooter is a former military person, probably seriously traumatized himself by violent conflict. Um, He'd been arrested earlier uh, for uh, domestic assault of his wife and um, cracking the skull uh, of his toddler stepson. You know, we've had so many of these mass shootings and um, I think we're all beginning to see the patterns in, in, in what's happening. But uh, Dr. Eisler, the guest on my show today has uh, understood them for a long time as a manifestation of what she calls the domination system. So she's uh I'm going to give you a formal introduction of her in a second, but she's really a superstar, an amazing person um, who is going strong in her later years and just contributing so much. shes We're going to cover a lot in the interview. Uh, she's going to talk about her childhood escaping the Nazis by a hair's breadth and, and many other things, but um, uh, some of the connection between the divine feminine and peace building Um, but, uh, mostly, uh, she's going to focus on the connection between gender relations in the family and what happens on the world stage, a topic, which is super interesting to me, um, and that I want people to become much more aware of what, uh, she calls regressives in the United States have known, and maybe, maybe she thinks of it as a more global concept. I don't know. Um, uh, have known for a long time that the way to achieve their political agenda is to start with the family from the bottom up and make sure it is more authoritarian, that the father is the master of the house, um, and and they understand that there's a connection between that and support at the the, uh, state level um, for a more militaristic agenda. Um, And she contrasts this um, with the need... For progressives to understand the, that the issue of, of women and children uh, and um, caring are important, obviously, in their own right, but they are fundamentally connected to what could be a more of a partnership agenda, and um, which also um, where it exists, which of course is not anywhere near in enough places, there's a strong correlation between it and a much more peaceful agenda at the level of the state and at the level of global affairs. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I was super excited to have uh, Dr. Eisler agree to it. Um, It is brought to you by SusanColeman.Global, which specializes in mediation, facilitation, and coaching processes to build common ground, and also customized women's leadership initiatives for your organization. So let me start with a more formal introduction to Dr. Eisler, and then we'll get on with the interview. Rianne Eisler is uh, a systems scientist, cultural historian, and attorney whose research has inspired both scholars and social activists and greatly inspired me in 1987 when I first read her book, for which she's very well known for, The Chalice and the Blade, Our History, Our Future, uh, in which she divides the history of humanity into models of partnership and models of domination. Um, And when I read it, I remember just a lot of things clicking into place and making uh, a lot more sense. She also wrote a book called The Real Wealth of Nations, um, creating a caring economics, and um, which was hailed by Archbishop Desmond Tutu as a template for the better world we have been so urgently seeking, by Gloria Steinem as quote unquote revolutionary, and by Jane Goodall as a quote uh, call to action. There's so many things to say about her, but I want to say that. She also, uh, Dr. Eisler, is the only woman among 20 major thinkers, including Hegel, Adam Smith, Marx, and Toynbee, in macro history and macro historians, in recognition of the lasting importance of her work as a cultural historian and evolutionary theorist. She's also received many honors, including the inclusion in the award winning book, Great Peacemakers, as one of 20 leaders for world peace along with Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, and Martin Luther King. Now, if you hadn't already heard her name, now that you have heard it, uh, you will hear it often because she is quoted um, all the time. Uh, So, Dr. Eisler, I... um, I just sit, in, like really, have such deep gratitude to you, uh, and I know that I'm I'm not alone. I mean, just in the last week, uh, I was on a call with Terry Reel. I don't know if you know him, but he's a, a marriage and family therapist. He's doing something on the crisis of masculinity. He's got quite a high profile. Talked about you. I was on another call with Bill Yuri Talked about you. I think I heard Brene Brown talking about you. You know, it's like you, you, you just have. You just laid so many important seeds for people, and uh, and I know for me, I, I don't remember when the chalice and the blade came out. Um, but
1: what well, what year did it come out? It came out in 87, 1987
0: 87. Yeah. And I know it just, it just whammed, it was like, had a huge effect on me. And, um, really between that and also Bill Urey's uh, getting to peace, those, those two books really, really affected me big time. So I'm very, very grateful to you. And, um, and so, um, so can I, I, can I call, I, I, you know, can I call you rianne Is that okay? Is- of course,
1: it's fine.
0: <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, I just want to say to the audience that uh, this woman is—you know—she comes across everything like you might expect. Just so incredibly warm and smart, and uh, and connected, and uh, and just um, so committed to the planet. And I, I also thank you. I have to say thank you for my children because I, um, you know, I just went for a walk it's beautiful where I live, but it's 70 degrees. It should not be 70 degrees. I can't, I don't know that in centigrade. Uh, But in November, it should not be 70 degrees. So it's um, disturbing. The planet is disturbing. So let's get to it, because you have so many important things to say. And I, I think, um, I really wanted to start with you saying a little bit about um, how you became such a bright light, you know how you became such a messenger uh, for folks.
1: Well, as as you point out, I have a great deal of passion (laughs) for this work. And that passion is really rooted in my very early childhood experiences. Because um, I was a child refugee child uh, from the Nazis with my parents. And uh, we really had to escape in the middle of the night, just carrying what we could, you know, hold in our hands, basically. Uh, and we really only escaped by a hairspray. Uh First of all, uh, on crystal night, uh, the Gestapo came for my father and hauled him off. And my mother gave me a tremendous example of what I call spiritual courage. Because a lot of people were killed that night, and she could have been killed, but she stood up to these guys, and she recognized one of them um, as an Austrian, because the Austrians too, of course, many of them were Nazis, uh, who had been an errand boy in the family business. Mm -hmm. And she got furious, Mm -hmm. said, how dare you Mm -hmm. do this to Mm -hmm. this man who was so good to you, I want him back. Well, eventually some money did change hands, but she got him back. And then uh, we were on one of the very last ships to Cuba, which was one of the very few places. Cuba and Shanghai were selling visas to refugees uh, from Nazi Europe. Uh, We were on one of the very last ships before the St. Louis, which you may remember because a movie was made about it. Yeah. Voyage, the voyage of the damned. Right, right. And were damned, it was turned back, even though they had purchased entry permits to Cuba, like my parents had before that, uh, they were turned back not only by the Cubans, but by every other nation uh, in this hemisphere. Mm. Uh, so that many of them, of course, uh, had to return, you know, they returned to Europe, and many of them died in Nazi concentration camps, as happened to most of my extended family, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and as would have happened to my parents and to me had we not by a hair's breadth escaped. So these obviously growing up in poverty, basically the first years in Cuba in the slums, the industrial slums of Havana, all of this obviously had a profound effect on me and it led me to question Sorry, how
0: how old were you? When I was, was seven. Seven. Jeez.
1: Yeah, this is a really pivotal age because the brain is just beginning to ask a lot of questions. Right. And I ask the question, which is, does it have to be this way? Mm -hmm. Uh, When we have such a capacity as humans for caring, for empathy, for consciousness, for creativity, why has there been so much insensitivity, cruelty? that i witnessed. Yeah, i mean it's And that that really that is the question that of course years later <laughs> animated my research. Yeah. Do you think you
0: asked that question when you were 7? Did you do you think you it actually occurred to you like that?
1: You know, i'm not sure, but i know i was a bright child and i was a curious child, <laughs> and i still remember vividly standing Uh, on the Malencon, which is, you know, uh, the pier of of Havana. Mm -hmm. And the St. Louis was anchored there. And the anguish of my parents, uh, you know, about this ship and the disbelief that they they expressed that how could they send them back. Well, they, they did. So, yes, I started to ask questions. Whether I phrased it quite that way is another issue. Right, right. Well, um, yeah, we could go somewhere.
0: I, I was, I'm tempted to go into trauma, but I think I don't want to go there because I, I, we, we don't have, you know, we're trying to stick to our, our hour-long time, podcast time. And I, uh, you know, the thing that I really want, because this is the Peace Building Podcast, um, Bridging the Divide, you know, the focus of the podcast is, is really about different kinds of interventions that can be done to, in complex systems to build common ground. And you are, you are doing a huge intervention, sort of, I hate that word intervention, but, but, um, I, you know, I think, um, uh, what I really want to ask you is, um, I've been saying for a while, like I've, so I've been doing this podcast and I've been also thinking a lot about, I am a feminist. I've been a feminist for a long time and thinking about women and, and, uh, and then some of your work led me to think really the most important the most important peace building initiative that could happen on this planet is to empower women for women to empower themselves and for men to support them in empowering themselves. I think a lot of it has to come from women themselves to really step into their leadership. Um, but I I wanted to ask you about that and hear what you think about that. Um, yeah, I just wanted to hear what your but, thoughts are about that.
1: I think you know that uh, for me this is one of the cornerstones that we must build if we are serious about moving to a less violent, uh, yes, more just uh, and caring world. Uh, And as you know, my work is really a systems, a systemic Mm -hmm. approach. And it's way out of the conventional uh, worldview because what I look at, Kind of,
0: um, kind of ahead of your time, Rianne. I think, <laughs> you, you know? know, it's
1: it's it, it really has been interesting. Uh, on the one's, on the one hand, it's it's very exciting to be ahead of one's time, mm-hmm. as I I'm teaching a uh, now at the University of Alabama uh, online, which is fabulous, which mm-hmm. I love because you know I I can be home and still teach uh, to these wonderful graduate and undergraduate students, and I've been rereading my books, and yes, they are each so ahead of their time. Uh, in fact, they're even more relevant today than when I wrote them. Yeah. Getting back to the intervention of raising the status of women, empowering women, why is this so important? Of course, it's very important for the female half of humanity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, when you consider the pandemic of abuse, of violence, of discrimination that is so embedded in traditions worldwide, traditions that we're really trying to leave behind today, which is the good news, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's also essential for the system to change. Uh, I sometimes, uh, just to cut to the chase here... uh, Talk I, As you know, I talk about four cornerstones, mm-hmm. about childhood, you know, family, childhood, gender, and here we are, you know, with, with women, uh, economics, but from a different perspective than either capitalism or socialism, and language and narratives. The gender, this hidden system. Maybe you should
0: say four cornerstones of what, because listeners may not know oh, oh. what what you mean.
1: Four cornerstones of either what I call a domination system, which is what we're trying to leave behind, or a more peaceful and equitable partnership system. And I really had to use new language, as you know, because if you look at right-left, religious-secular, eastern-western, northern-southern, which is how I started my research, looking through these lenses, uh, with. For starters, societies in every one of these car- categories has been violent and unjust, you know, whether it's right. Hitler's Germany, Kim Jong-un's North Korea, you know, rightist, leftist, secular, whether it's religious fundamentalist, uh, uh, you know, or, 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 you know, or, I mean, so I needed to really, but, but what characterizes my research is that it is truly systemic, and it not only looks, as, as do most social analyses, at uh, trying to dismantle, if you will, the top of what I call the domination pyramid, politics and economics as conventionally defined, but the base on which it keeps rebuilding itself, and that's when we come to family and other intimate relations, gender relations, uh, and yes, we come also to the fact that we have inherited a gendered system of values in which not only women, but anything that's stereotypically associated with women, uh, nonviolence, caring, caregiving is devalued. And so I look at this in terms of systems dynamics. And from that perspective, it is clear. And if you look at at societies, at different, more peaceful societies, invariably, in contrast to more violent, and I mean violent not only aggressively outside, Mm -hmm. but internal violence as well, invariably in the domination system, a top priority is always getting women back to their, quote, traditional place, which of course is a code word, isn't it? For a subservient place in a, quote, traditional family, another code word for an authoritarian, male-dominated, highly punitive family. And the mm-hmm. connections between that and strongman rule in the state or tribe, the connections between that and the kinds of values that are the guiding values of a system are so Absolutely visible once you get rid of the old blinkers of the old categories.
0: Yeah, I know. from my, this is very personal to me because I, I, I always say I kind of grew up right in the in the heart of patriarchy. I grew up uh, fairly affluent uh, in the United States, and but I was definitely a second class citizen in my family. And um, and I, my father worked on Wall Street, uh, had a lot of access to a lot of powerful people. Um, I lived in kind of a madmen world, if that means anything to you, a lot of uh, sort of F. Scott Fitzgerald world, a lot of money and power around me. And yet I um, was uh, very, I, I grew up quite afraid of my older brother all the time. I was threatened. It was a violent situation. And then I reproduced it in my marriage and I Married a dominator husband. I'm being very personal here, but I have been personal about it because, um, I, I really have gone through a personal transformation myself where I have, uh, really made the links between patriarchy on the one hand, imperialism on the other hand. I also am somebody who grew up watching the Vietnam War take its place on our t- televisions, you know, and the kind of exploitation and, uh, that was happening there. So I I think when I came across your work and saw it put so, cl- because it's not about socialism and 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 Marxism and cap versus capitalism. It's it's it, when you add the gender factor in there, it's much more about how are men and women. Is there a one up? And a one down in the society and does it show up in the family and does it show up in in the world and i'm i'm talking to you the one who told me about this but (laughs) um but it really was so clarifying when i saw your thinking about uh dividing the world into dominator systems and partnership systems um maybe you could just back up for a second And say, because I also think one thing that I think a lot of people don't know, even though you've probably said it so many times, is that it wasn't always like this, if you look at the history of humanity. So maybe you would just say a little bit about that for the listeners.
1: Well, what's beginning to emerge is a very different narrative, a different story. Remember, one of the cornerstones is narratives, because we humans live by stories, of course, uh, about human possibilities. And uh, my part in bringing that narrative to the public was, of course, through the first through the chalice and the blade, which, by the way, is now celebrating its 30th anniversary. And I wrote a new epilogue for it that brings Ah. it completely up to date to today, uh, to where we stand right now, Trump uh, North Korea, you know everything that Russia, the way it is right now. Congratulations,
0: uh, and I can't wait wait to read the epilogue. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Well,
1: I, I wanted our listeners to know that. Uh, so that book um, brings out uh, findings from both mythology and archaeology. Actually, archaeology confirming ancient myths. Uh, you know, it's really very really interesting. When Schliemann uh, excavated Troy, uh, he made a see that actually uh, the story in the Iliad uh, was really based on reality, that it was just a myth that there was Troy. Well, in the same way, the stories, for example, of Hesiod, of this earlier race, as he puts it, who tilled their the soil in peaceful ease before a lesser race came in and brought in Aris, the Greek god of war, that uh, they too are based on fact. Hmm. Uh, and the fact is that uh, in that book, uh, in The Chalice and the Blade, and later on in Sacred Pleasure, which looks at sexuality and spirituality and, and therefore politics, economics, etc. You know, the subtitle is Sex, Myth and the Politics of the Body. I bring in this evidence uh, of places like Chatalhuyak, where there are no signs of destruction through warfare for 1,000 years of Minoan Crete, which lasted really until about 3,000 years ago, uh, where again... There is no sign of warfare between the various city-states, uh, and it was already a quote high civilization. In other words, uh, centralized. Uh, the first, the first paved roads and the first plumbing. Plumbing always impresses Americans <laughs> in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that is a possibility. And since then, uh, we are finding out, of course, that that whole story about our primate heritage, they're the bonobos, yeah, which in contrast to the chimpanzees, uh, share uh, food, share pleasure through sex, rather than being no signs of the kind of, you know, and yet, if you read the literature, it's always the chimpanzees they talk about, mm-hmm. not the bonobos, mm-hmm. even though we have the same Relationship as far as DNA goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and well, now, mm-hmm. yeah. And I was just going to say, we know from foraging societies, you know, that that mythology, and I call it mythology, of uh, evolutionary psychologists or sociobiologists, biologists, that yeah, well, uh, it's our primate heritage, and if not, it's the heritage from the savannah when we were foragers. Well, it turns out foraging societies, and uh, Douglas Fry professor at the University of Alabama, uh, is a world expert on this, Uh, they're more peaceful. Mm -hmm. And yes, uh, you have to look at the whole social system.
0: Well, I know, you know, the work of Bill Urey certainly corroborates what you're saying. I I remember his chart of um, uh, 10,000 years of coercion and what is it, the rest of of human history, which is Nine. I don't know, you know, I forget how many, but huge. Oh, been, 90%, yeah, been, yeah. Yeah, only a small, infinitesimal part of our time on the planet have we been violent and coercive and competitive and patriarchal and however you want, whatever,
1: or, or using a dominator model. <laughs> you know, I, I want to say something. First of all, of course, these were not ideal societies and people are very strange. They accept all kinds of horrible things in what I call domination systems, but if you provide them with an alternative, if it isn't completely and absolutely perfect, it's not good enough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, So let's get over that. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not talking about ideal. But the second thing is I I think that it's very important that we understand that uh, actually patriarchy and matriarchy, which is language again, Mm -hmm. to really analyze them, Which I, because I'm very much aware of what linguistic psychologists tell us, that the categories that we learn, that we are taught, channel our thinking. Well, they're really two sides of a dominator coin, aren't they? You know, matriarchy is controlled by mothers. Patriarchy is controlled by fathers. Well, the alternative is partnership, not matriarchy or patriarchy. And I think that's very important, that we change the language. This is one of the struggles that we have with very much with progressive people because, as I said, regressives get it. Mm -hmm. They connect the dots. Mm -hmm. I I wrote an op-ed in 2007 pointing this out, that uh, over the past decades, enormous resources... Enormous time, enormous energy was invested by regressives in pushing the normative ideal of family back to the point where if people in 1992 were asked, uh, do you agree that the father is the, quote, master of the house? Uh, it, it was 40, I think it was 42%. By 2002, it was 52%. Mm -hmm. They connect the strongman rule in the family, violence, punitiveness in the family with what happens in the state. And yet progressives have accepted that these are just, quote, social issues, and they're just gonna focus on the, quote, important things. And because the regressives have focused so much energy On reinforcing the domination foundations. Yes, family and childhood, gender, economics, you know, trickle-down economics, it's domination economics. So can you make it very
0: simple for people listening to the connection between what happens in the family and issues of war and peace? It's a big topic, but I think you can say it very simply for people so that they understand. All right.
1: Well, look, look at what, uh, what do children learn in this, quote, traditional, authoritarian, um, male-dominated, highly punitive family. And let's, let's, let's just be clear. Uh, just a few hundred years ago, at the time when both capitalism and socialism first appeared, uh, women were male property, mm-hmm. property. As were children. I mean, my mother,
0: I mean, not that this is, but my mother, you know, 1960s. she couldn't even have a credit card. She wasn't, I think she was not allowed to have a credit card. That's right. That recently, you know,
1: it's amazing. That recently. Mm -hmm. So let's not kid ourselves, you know, I mean, this was the status quo, okay? So when you have uh, that kind of a family experience, and remember, we know from neuroscience that our brains develop in interaction with their environments, especially in the early years, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And that children's critical faculties are certainly not formed until much, much later, if, you know, in the teens, Mm -hmm. hopefully. Mm -hmm. And some people, they never really are, Mm -hmm. if they're out of really rigid domination systems. Well, what do children learn? Just to go to your question if they have, first of all, this model of the species that equates difference, beginning with the difference between male and female, which is very obvious, isn't it? Uh, Even though there are gradations, I mean, we know, but you know, in terms of of body. Believe me,
0: it was in the water for me. I learned right away that men were more important than women and should be deferred to.
1: But what do they get there? They get a template for equating difference, Mm. beginning with that fundamental Mm -hmm. difference in species with dominating or being dominated, Mm -hmm. with superiority or inferiority, Mm -hmm. with being served or serving. Right, right. And then they have that template. So it is not a coincidence, and I really want to emphasize this that you find this correlation between, say, racist prejudices Mm -hmm. in the United States, Mm -hmm. or Shia against Sunni, or Sunni against Shia, Mm -hmm. or Buddhist against um, Muslim. I mean, it doesn't matter, in-group versus out-group thinking. and. Well, one up,
0: one down, you know, somebody
1: more. One up, one down, Mm -hmm. that you find this correlation in societies where you have this normative ideal of this, quote, traditional authoritarian male dominated punitive family. The punitiveness of the family is a very important aspect too, because children learn another lesson, don't they? They learn that it is very painful, very painful to even question orders, no matter how unjust. And that too is carried forward. I mean, you know, let's really look at the whole picture. In but but progressives still have this habit, which we've inherited, of saying, "Well, yeah, these are not these are just quote women's and children's issues." Well, and You're, so before you go there uh, and make the link between that
0: family that has the authoritarian model and what kind of support there is or there isn't for. More violent conflict or more support for uh, war, you know, militarism? I think well, you said
1: there is a link. Of course, there is a link. If you learn that it is okay, even moral, to use violence to impose your will on others, namely parents on children, men on women, occasionally women on men, but that's really, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of a role reversal, actually, the quote, hand wife, right, um, the, the word says it. If you learn that, you generalize that, don't you, to other uses of violence. Mm-hmm. It's okay to use violence, it's moral, it's holy, the holy war. For Hitler, war was just as holy as it is for ISIS. Right. So what about
0: a society that is um, not using a – are are there societies that are not using a dominator model at this point? Are they emerging? Is partnership emerging? And how is it showing up both at the state level and at the family level?
1: Well, first of all, I think once we understand the configuration, that it really does start with family, with gender, uh, with the – gendered system of values of of devaluing caring caregiving nonviolence in economics right going which is something that both marx and smith devalued right for caring, for, caring for nature wasn't part of the picture caring for children that was just reproductive women's work mm-hmm. once you get past that and also past the old narratives and understand this what you begin to see then is Uh, a completely different picture, don't Mm -hmm. you? And then you begin to see that you really have to pay particular attention to these foundations or you keep having regressions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you ask me, are there societies um, that are moving more? It's a continuum. It's a social scale. No no society is is either pure partnership or pure domination. Mm -hmm. Of course, I already mentioned some of the uh, foraging societies not all of them but but some of them at least uh, but some very advanced technologically advanced societies the uh, Nordic societies Sweden Finland Norway they have moved more and again not perfect mm. but they first of all have less of an authoritarian and and more democratic in the true sense of the word not just elections because people elect, Trump they elect Hamas, they elect the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean you know because they want to replicate their family experiences always. Uh, they have that in both the family and the state or tribe. They have much more gender equity. Women are about 50 percent of the national legislature. That's representative democracy. Mm. I mean it's, it's ridiculous to talk about representative democracy in the United States. you know with less than 20 percent. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah. And with this, what happens is that they also then have more caring values. Mm -hmm. They even call themselves not democratic socialism, uh, which is, by the way, Hitler used that term, Mm -hmm. but caring societies. They have universal health care, universally good quality child care, very generous paid parental leave, elder care with dignity. I mean caring policies we're not talking about socialism we're talking about a focus on human capacity development and human well-being and yes they also care more for nature they're way ahead of us in alternative energy and of course the the third part that i really want to emphasize not only do they have Uh, in terms of childhood, you know, all of these caring policies. But they also pioneered the first laws, the first legislation saying it's against the law to use physical discipline against children, which correlates directly with that. They also pioneered the first peace academies, you know, their peaceful character. I mean, let's really begin to connect the dots. Right, right.
0: So, you know, there's a lot of talk about the masculine and the feminine, uh, certainly in the United States right now, you know, bringing the feminine to work. And what, what in your mind, what is the masculine and what is the feminine?
1: <laughs> well, I really don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's the short answer. Uh, the fact is this, that uh, certainly there are some biological differences, obviously, between female and male, but that's very different from... Feminine and masculine; these are social constructs, and so much of that is changing right in front of our eyes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not only that women are entering domains which were totally—I mean, even when I first got involved in the women's liberation movement, uh, in uh, the, the the want ads were segregated into help wanted male with all the good jobs. Mm-hmm. There and then help wanted female with all the dead end helper jobs there. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, we're, we're, but but look at so women are beginning to 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 break through, but we have to be very careful by the way, because as women are discovering, just getting a bigger piece of the existing pie, as I like to say it, is not what we really need for ourselves, for our men, for our children. We want to, we have to, to use a woman's metaphor, bake a better pie Mm -hmm. Uh, you know and 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 that makes a difference but look at men these men who are diapering babies who are feeding babies doing this quote women's work so when you ask me what's masculine and what's feminine i have to say they're social constructs and i think that it's important that we identify these stereotypes Mm -hmm. because unless we understand this hidden system of gendered valuations that we have inherited a system of values in which the stereotypically masculine, you know, domination, conquest, winning, right, is idealized, and the stereotypically feminine, you know, caring, caregiving, nonviolence, is simply not considered appropriate for, quote, real men who run the show.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. If,
1: we, if we don't recognize that that we have inherited it, So we still need those classifications. But frankly, I think of these as human qualities. I think women can be assertive and know they're not ball breakers when they are. Uh, You know, it's fine for men to be assertive, but for women, it's a cardinal sin, right? Mm -hmm. And men can be very sensitive and caring. I happen to be married to such a man. Mm -hmm. So we're talking really about deconstructing and reconstructing. That's what my work's about. It's not just about critiquing. It is about showing that something better is possible, but we need to build the social conditions so that our capacities for caring, for caregiving, for nonviolence, for sensitivity, for consciousness, for creativity, are supported and We need to leave behind the social conditions, and that's where we come to those four cornerstones, this being basic, uh, that support the other possibility for humans, which is insensitivity, cruelty, destructiveness. And I've identified these four cornerstones of family childhood, gender is the second one, including this gendered system of values, economics, completely different economics, what I call a caring economics in my book, The Real Wealth of Nations, and of course, narratives and new language. Uh,
0: so, do you feel, well, well, let me see, what's my question? Do you, you know, what do you feel like is the biggest, my question is something like, what is the biggest obstacle and what makes you most hopeful? Or maybe I'll say this, are, are you
1: hopeful? Yes, I am hopeful. And there's a difference between uh, being Pollyanna and, you know, and everything is going to turn out fine and, you know, the new age is coming and all of this nonsense, really, and being hopeful. Because I am hopeful that there is a possibility uh, of people beginning to understand these dynamics and working on building these four foundations I'm not saying we should not do everything else we're doing, okay, but unless we focus on these, and as you mentioned at the beginning, gender, empowering women, is runs through the whole thing, doesn't it? Yes. Because if women are empowered, then caring, caregiving, nonviolence are also, uh, not that all women are caring, caring, you know, and nonviolent, but you see the connection they rise as they did in Nordic nations
0: you know what do you think I mean I've been I think I mentioned to you that I have been part of watching in for myself and a lot of women really wake up to their own divinity like really get uh, a very different sense of myself of ourselves um, that is very different from some of the messaging that we got growing up and And then I know, I don't know. I guess I would wonder if you could say something about the sacred feminine and your understanding of that and how it got so sublimated because it, it did. It got, it got really somehow it, it went into the mist or, or it disappeared, you know, and I, and maybe it's coming back. I don't know. So, well,
1: it's, it's, it's trying to come back, but that you see, people don't like. Before our brains are fully formed, we're taught religion, we're taught fairy tales, and they really reinforce the old domination system. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've written about this, especially in Sacred Pleasure, you know, I really analyze this at depth. So we're talking about if men were deprived of a model of themselves in the form of this ultimate power, as we think of the divine. And if they were denied, as women have been, entry into the priesthood, uh, they are denied uh, really not only of their own sense of value, but of moral authority. Mm -hmm. The authority to say what is right and wrong, including what is done to them. So we have been denied this as women. And I consider, therefore, and, and really the chalice and the blade and sacred pleasure, are to a very interesting uh, and deep extent uh, the reclamation Mm -hmm. of the sacred feminine. But, you know, uh, it, it, it seems so normal to me that, of course, we have projected out of domination systems the same divine structure as the old family and social structure with men having full and absolute power. So, as we're trying to leave that behind, uh, of course the sacred feminine is coming. I mean, I get so much mail from both women and men saying how important, well, the chalice and the blade, of course, how that's transformative, as you have said. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that uh, we, we really need to understand that that's an area where we're going to find a lot of resistance. And, Wait, uh, sorry, is which dep- is the area? That, religion. What, mm-hmm. You know, it's very hard for people. I see it in my class, you know, these wonderful young people who are working for peace and justice, but when you start talking about uh, whether it's Jehovah, you know, uh, or whether it's uh, in the Mahabharata, you know, these deities killing each other, uh, or whether it's in Buddhism, you know, where really priests weren't even in, in many sects to, to, to even touch a woman, lest they be polluted, right? right. right, right. Uh, you start talking about that, and, and you start talking about the sacred, quote, stories, you know, like Adam and Eve, which, of course, you know, if you look at it in terms of the old reality, it made a lot of sense for Eve to ask a serpent, a serpent was a symbol of oracular prophecy, as late as in the Delphic Oracle, right? Mm -hmm. Where the Pisonists, you know, the Pisonists worked with a serpent, the python, Mm -hmm. and all of the uh, leaders, men by then, came to her for oracular wisdom. So she was going to the snake for oracular wisdom. That's the old reality. Uh, and, And seeking knowledge yourself, well, of course. The new reality was that a male god should punish us for seeking knowledge, that knowledge seeking knowledge independently is bad. That's the ultimate authoritarian message. Yeah, but it's very hard for people to to really look at it from that uh, historical perspective. That this was part of the remissing. Yeah, what of,
0: happened? So, what happened to the divine feminine? How did it get subjugated to the extent that it did?
1: Well, women got subjugated, and men uh, then created these stories, right, the narratives, the religious narratives in which either, I mean, it's really interesting because even in Hindu mythology, uh, if you look at, for example, uh, Shiva and Shakti, Shakti, the female, is in many representations one half the size of Shiva. Mm -hmm. But, of course, in the monotheistic religions, uh, she's Completely written out. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, so you have in Christianity this really bizarre Holy Family, where only the males, the father and the son, are divine, and the mother of God, is the only mortal figure. I mean, you know, if a Martian were to come and say that say, these people are bizarre, but but Rianne, why 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 did that happen? Oh, because we live by stories. The stories, the myths—you uh-huh. you don't justified. think it was just—it
0: was just a matter of settling down and competition for resources, and you know, figuring that might makes right, and that's the way to do it, and you know.
1: Well, I think it—it it, uh, certainly seems to have started uh, with that. I subscribe to the theory of these pastoralist invasions—you uh, know, herders uh, who came into the farming areas and took over. Uh, but you cannot really, you know, the pen really is, even in a non literate society, the story mm-hmm. is more powerful than the sword. Mm-hmm. And keep people subjugated, both men and women need to internalize, need to believe the story that this is divinely ordained or naturally ordained, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so much science seems to want us to believe. Mm-hmm. But that's beginning to change, and that's the good news. Neuroscience is, for example, showing that, if anything, we humans have a proclivity for empathy and for caring, but it has to be supported by, remember, the interaction of environment and genes.
0: So what, what do you think... I mean we haven't gone in great depth into the caring economy and and um, uh, an analysis of that and I really encourage the listeners to read uh, the, the real wealth wealth of nations because it's very clear and and uh, really um, connected to what we're talking about um, but what do you think is the, the biggest obstacle that we're facing um, and what makes you most angry <laughs>
1: <laughs> well I'm very angry at injustice and I think that we really have to understand that there is such a thing as constructive anger and and I think perhaps I'm a good example of that because obviously I was upset by injustice from childhood on mm-hmm. and I've been somehow through a circuitous route mind you <laughs> yeah and through lots of difficulties, it didn't happen just like that. Uh, been able to use that anger uh, in order to really think and observe, and and you know, having grown up in three different cultures helped, by the way. You know, so first, Vienna,
0: Cuba, you, the United States.
1: Yeah, because I realized that what people consider "quote just the way things are" is not the same everywhere. Right.
0: Right.
1: And so I come from this from a completely, as you've heard, a completely, and, and see, my first job out of out of college was with an offshoot of the RAND Corporation, the Systems Development Corporation, at a time when, if you said systems analysis, people would just say, what?
0: Cool job, maybe." Was it, was it a good job? Well,
1: it was a terrible job. It was a terrible job. I mean. <laughs> Because they were only interested in military systems. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. But, but I was interested in this new way of analyzing, not in terms complex systems. You can't understand them in terms of just simple causes and effects. Mm-hmm. You have to look at interactive, mm-hmm. mutual supporting, mm-hmm. or mutually destabilizing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and reconstructing dynamics. Mm-hmm. That's the essence of my approach.
0: So, so again, what do you think is the biggest obstacle to uh, the partner to, I mean, listen, the partner, when you read it, it's, there's so many things that are so messed up on the planet right now. I I can say so many people agree with me everywhere. It's it's really kind of frightening uh, on a a number of fronts. And when you read about the partnership model, you say, well, that seems kind of obvious why don't we do that? That just seems like that makes a lot of sense. Why Why is it so difficult to move in that direction? What are the biggest obstacles in your mind?
1: Well, the biggest obstacles in my mind is that frankly, progressives have not paid sufficient attention to the foundations on which domination systems keep rebuilding themselves, whether they're secular, like Hitler or Kim Jong-un, whether they're religious, like ISIS or the rightist fundamentalist would-be theocracy in this country, Uh, whereas regressives have paid attention to not only maintaining the domination nature of those cornerstones, including this notion of trickle-down economics. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like in feudal times when people were conditioned to accept the scraps dropping from the opulent tables of those on top. Mm. And we have to understand that this is not capitalism. Mm. Capitalism is just so-called trickle-down capitalism, Mm. is just one version of feudal or monarchic or whatever, economics, domination, economics. Once we understand that, we can really stop fighting these battles which I mean, socialism in the former Soviet Union and China turned into domination systems, for, sure. for mm-hmm. sakes. So that's the biggest obstacle. But I think getting people out of their comfort zones. Mm-hmm. And I have focused now, I'm really focusing now on not regressives, because even though some of them will change, but on progressives. Mm-hmm. And getting progressives to have the systemic approach and to stop really, uh, just dismissing these things as just women's issues and just children's issues, and recognize or just the environment, or you know, or just anything mm-hmm. because you can't. Mm-hmm. I, I spoke to the United Nations on a on a session on harmony with nature, mm-hmm. uh, sponsored by Bolivia, by the way. Mm-hmm. Of course, the Pachamama is still, you know, the great mother,
0: right.
1: the great Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, but, but the problem is you have to change the whole system. You cannot just, uh, a machismo is well in Bolivia. I mean, as you can see with, you know, the, the treatment of indigenous people and, I mean, women it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to change the whole system. You cannot just tack on environmental harmony to a fundamentally unharmonious and imbalanced system. hmm so um, we
0: uh, are coming to the en- end of our, our hour, and I just—I uh, mean, it's really—I think what you just said is is so key. And uh, but I, I wanted to just see if there's anything that that you want to say that um, that feels most important in summary to summarize what you said said. Um, about the connections between the family and the systems of war and peace and um, whatever you think would be a good summary for what we've been talking about and the focus on, well, I'll leave it to you.
1: Well, I, I have been working on what I call an integrated, a systemic progressive political agenda. Recognizing that the regressive agenda whether it's religious or secular, Eastern or Western. Uh, whether it's well, Maybe the that
0: phrase, regressive, what do you mean by that, so that people understand what you mean by that?
1: I really mean the people, whether they're socialists or capitalists, or whether they're Eastern or Western, uh, et cetera, et cetera, who really want to go back to the old domination system of, Strong men rule in both the family and the state, uh, of the morality, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. of using violence to impose your will on others, of the devaluation of half of humanity, and anything that we have been taught is not appropriate for, quote, real men. Like caring, caregiving, nonviolence. You know, when we talk about the nanny state, mm-hmm. I mean, come on, give me a break.
0: Well, it's interesting, Terry Real, the, the guy I was mentioning, and you, you probably hear about him now that I've said his name. But he says, you know, the way that masculinity is defined, it's a negative definition. It's anything That's that right. is not feminine. So That's to right. be a real man, you can't be a wimp. You can't be a fag. You can't be gay. You can't be you, and you can't be vulnerable. <laughs> you have to That's- be. Yeah.
1: Well, and of course, men are just as vulnerable as women. Absolutely. And it, the domination I system is a mess for men. I mean, historically, yeah. they've had to give their, their lives, their bodies, because some guy on top wanted more real estate. Right. Right. And that's still
0: the case. Right. Right. I mean, so yeah. much of it seems like, boys. I have a son and a beautiful soul. My daughter is a beautiful soul. uh, but I you know, I think, boy, these little boys. He was such a he was such a sensitive little boy. And so many of our little boys I think are just acculturated. I think so early on they're made into little warriors for our domination system. You know, so that they can yeah, look at
1: look at our look at the epics, look at the things that they're taught in history. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wrote a book on education mm-hmm. called Tomorrow's Children. Mm-hmm. Analyzing not only what a lot of progressive educators have done, uh, which is process and structure, but content. Mm-hmm. What the mm-hmm. stories mm-hmm. we're telling children that they internalize. But you know, look, it's an exciting time today. And I do want to end with this. If we can understand that the struggle for our future is not between East and West and North and South and capitalists and socialists and right and left, but within within all these systems between, on the one hand, the configuration of the domination system and on the other, the configuration of the partnership system. Once we understand this, as you know, we become tremendously empowered uh, to really Use our human capacities, especially our human capacities for creativity, because we have now, especially with automation, robotics. I mean, that's another story, you know, entirely when mm-hmm. we talk economics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as I, as as you said, you know, the real wealth of nation deals with this. But we have the opportunity now, when so many jobs have already been replaced. By automation robotics artificial intelligence and projections are that many many more will be to redefine nothing less than what is and is not productive work mm-hmm. so and we also frankly uh, as i write in the chalice and the Blade and in real you know in all my books uh, we also stand at a crossroads crossroads in human evolution where at our level of technological development the domination system could take us to an evolutionary dead end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, So I choose to look at the crisis in both these areas, economics, environment, uh, weaponry, you know, nuclear war, biological war, as opportunities.
0: Yeah, it comes back to your childhood dream. It doesn't have to be this way. It really doesn't yes. have to be, we could, we could actually create a, a quite a, I mean, life will always have pain, but we could create so much more pleasure <laughs> than we do for all of us, uh, in a, in a partnership system, I think. So thank you very much for your time. And, uh, thank you very much for your work. And I can't wait to read the epilogue to the chalice and the blade. And, um, so if people
1: want to reach out to you, what's the best place for them to go? Well, they can go to my website, uh, Rianne, and uh, strangely, Rianne Eisler with two E's in the middle.com, but better still, go to centerforpartnership.org because that is the organization that is really engaged in research, education, uh, activism uh, to implement these strategies and tactics needed to accelerate this transformation from domination to partnership. And look, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I mean in the European Middle Ages we'd be burnt at the stake right. for having this conversation. Mm-hmm. So yes, but there is also, there is progress. <laughs> there is progress, but it's it's more of a spiral, up spiral with mm-hmm. dips. And we have to the next dip could be our last is our problem. Yeah. 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 So we got to build those foundations, those yeah. core
0: Well, thank you again uh, for myself, for my, all my colleagues, and also for all of our children, because I think your message is really profoundly important. And I, uh, I hope people really pay attention. <laughs> thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this very bright light, Dr. Rianne Eisler, Uh, such a pleasure to listen to this important roadmap that she's laying out for us. Um, I like her imagery that change happens in spirals. Don't like the imagery that this uh, last spiral, this last dip might be our last. It, It feels like, sometimes it feels like it could if we're not careful um so um check out the center for partnership studies uh the center for partnership studies i think the url is uh, centerforpartnership.org and please join us again on the peace building podcast it's been a pleasure to have you